0: I'm going to ask Jim McGillery if he'll open us in a word of prayer
1: today.
2: Our Father and our God, it's uh, always a great privilege to remember that uh, we are always in your presence as believers. And and so we give thanks for this special opportunity to come together and fellowship around your word, that we can grow, uh, that we can grow spiritually, that we can grow to know you better, that we can grow to serve you better. That we can grow to uh, love one another better and to obey you better, Jesus. Uh, today we pray that you fill us powerfully with your Spirit as we listen, fill very powerfully as He teaches, and uh, so we give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. And if we have time at the end, I might give you a little bit of a adventure story.
1: Where's your
0: bike? Uh, That's part of the adventure story. Well, if you haven't turned to the book of Romans, we are still in the book, getting close to the end, however. And you probably can tell from the screen what's the main purpose of all things. And certainly what is the purpose of each of us and mankind is the glory of God. So I think it's appropriate that Paul ends this whole letter with that main theme underlying the passage that we're going to look at today. I don't plan on completing it, but uh, we should get well into it and give you a little introduction to the glory of God. So we're going to talk a little bit about the glory of God today and define it a little bit, explain it a little bit, and bring it out from the passage itself. So the glory of God, obviously we're dealing with the church at Rome, believers, written to believers. We've seen this chart several times. We're in the portion that we call application, application relating to God, application relating to the church, how the Christian life should be worked out in society. And now we're looking at the last section of the book of Romans where it deals with probably the only problem well, I shouldn't say the only problem, probably a problem that existed at the church at Rome, because this is the only issue that he really raises that kind of deals with practical problems, actually. An issue of unity within the body of Christ, unity of the church, and the problem of backgrounds and how those backgrounds can affect relationships. So we've been looking at chapters 14 through 15 to the middle up to verse 13 and in that we're looking at the last paragraph now so the context of this overall he's preventing conflicts or attempting to prevent conflicts within the body of christ that arise from these questionable areas now the bible is very clear it's crystal clear there are absolutes there are ten commandments nine of them are repeated in the new testament one of them is for the Jewish people and those that are under the Mosaic Covenant. That's the worship of the Sabbath. Even though it's part of the Ten Commandments, that one is related to a particular group of people. But others, and there's others besides the Nine Commandments, there are absolutes that deal with morality, deal with even relationships. So there are definitely rights and wrongs. So these are issues that come primarily from these backgrounds that all of us come from different ones. And in the first century, there are people that came out of a Jewish background. They became believers, and now that they're believers, they are free in Christ. That freedom in terms of everyday practice sometimes is a little fuzzy for some some believers, especially if it's been drilled into your head that the Sabbath, is one of the Ten Commandments, and the observance of the Sabbath is required under the Mosaic law, and other things relating to certain foods that were prohibited, those types of things. Now you become a believer, Jesus declares all foods clean, and now the Sabbath is set aside. It's Jewish. It's not a relationship to the church, and I've been saying over and over, Sunday is not a Christian Sabbath. There's reasons why we worship on Sunday, but it doesn't carry over all of those Sabbath requirements. We are free to watch football on Sundays. All right. Well, you laugh, but there are some churches that would say that it's a sin and that it's a violation of the Sabbath. And you should not do that. So that comes from these backgrounds, and there's some different things in our culture, some of them dealing with alcohol, some of them dealing with other issues as well. These, these are the issues that divide us within the body of Christ, and Paul is trying to minimize that or prevent that if we will abide by the instruction that he gives. So that's the whole section. Now we can break the section down into, into different parts, first 12 verses, The whole theme is accepting one another. Now, we're going to see in chapter 15, verse 7, he's going to go back. So he's kind of wrapping things up. And in fact, I take verse 1 of chapter 15 almost like, okay, let's go back to verse 1 and keep in mind everything that I've said from verse 1 to uh, chapter 15, verse 6. So he's kind of capturing the whole thing here and bringing it to a conclusion and where it should result? It should result in God being glorified. And if we practice the principles that we've been looking at, then God, in fact, will be glorified. So the acceptance of one another with different convictions. So if if a new believer has a problem with a certain area, watching football on Sundays or whatever it may be, because he thinks it's part of a Sabbath of observance, then then we are careful not to flaunt our freedom to watch in front of them. So we accept them. We don't try to change them. We let them grow at God's pace. So first 12 verses, accepting one another with differing convictions. Chapter 14, the last part, 13 through 23, looks more at the stronger believer that has a good grasp on Christian freedom and has all of these freedoms. But in the midst of those that don't have them, uh, Paul advises us to restrain. And you might even notice that he takes the side of the strong. In other words, he doesn't remove the freedom or he doesn't minimize the freedom, but we do voluntarily restrain and we do it for the benefit of those that don't have the same convictions. So that's the theme of 13 through 23. Last week, we saw the responsibility of living like Christ. Christ sets the example. So the responsibility of Christ-likeness, and Christ is the perfect example of not only accepting all, but he is the one that ultimately sacrificed everything. In other words, he restrained everything for our benefit. So we have Christ lifted up as the example And the last part of it, if all of this is followed, in other words, if we heed what Paul has been teaching, then that's going to result in God's glory. So he's going to focus on this unity of the body and what God has done. In fact, he's going to lay out the whole plan of God in in these few verses. We may not get through all of of the, the verses that deal with the plan of God, but we'll at least get a start on them. So that's the essence of what we're looking at. And you might notice the theme of glory. Notice at the end of verse 7, wherefore, accept one another just as Christ accepted us, what? To the glory of God. In fact, he already started that theme in verse uh, 5 and 6. Remember, this is something of a a desire of Paul, framed something like a, a prayer even. Verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord, in other words, in unity, that's the theme, with one accord, you may with one voice, in other words, externally as well, not only internally, but externally, glorify, and there it is, there's the word, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't bring that out last time because it was kind of towards the end. So this theme of glory even starts in the prior paragraph. And now it's going to go further. We saw it in verse 7 and verse 9. For the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And now he's going to quote the glorification of God, not using the word glory. But uh, therefore, I will give praise. That's glorifying God. I will give praise, verse verse 9, last part, to thee among the Gentiles. And I will sing to thy name, singing to God's name. That's glorifying him. Verse 10, again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 11, praise the Lord. So the theme of glory with the word and other words related to glorifying or worshiping and uh, praising God.
1: I've heard definite, and I would like to know what it means. and understand what I've been told is the essence of God coming down to us. So I don't, I don't know what that means.
0: <laughs> that's a good, that's a good description. Well, we're going to talk specifically about that okay. and define it. Denise was asking for a little bit of a definition or a description of glory, and I, don't, I just told her that we'll get to that in a moment. So in outline form, we're in this major division of the book, application of God's righteousness, application of Christian liberty, receiving those of differing convictions, restraining for the building up or edification, responsibility of Christ's likeness, and all of that should result in the glory of God. So Paul prays essentially for the glory of God in verse 5 and 6, and now he's going to expand upon that and show how this is the end result here. And part of that starts with sustaining of brothers, and I'm using S to alliterate here. You could say accepting of brothers in verse 7. That's the word that is used two times, and we've already looked at that word. And as you can see, he's coming to a conclusion here. Therefore, almost summing everything that he's talked about before, and particularly the therefore going all the way back to uh, verse 1 of chapter 14. Therefore, the same theme of 14. What does 14 begin with? Now accept one another for one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. So the, the same word, same word. Does anyone remember the Greek word there? Ah, you got your notes. Look through your notes. And it's also the same word in verse 3. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God, and we have the same word, God has accepted him. In other words, the weaker in faith brother. Did you find it, Connie? Hmm? Uh, like that, Chris, no, that's a
1: uh, credo, no, no, that
0: judge. Nope. <laughs> let me give it to you. Look at your screen. Praslambano. Remember that good word? Translated to accept. Remember we went into a detailed, uh, well, not so detailed, but kind of a summary word study of that. To take to oneself. It's almost like bringing somebody close. It's like a hug. You could define it as hug one another. Bringing one close And it has that idea of even intimacy in some context to receive totally. So it's more than tolerate. We don't tolerate those. We actually embrace them. We bring them in. We take them to ourselves. And we already looked at uh, verse 1 and verse 3. Would somebody care to look at verse 18 where you have kind of a a visible way there of... uh, Translating that word, 1826. Somebody want to get that one real quick? In Philemon 17, dealing with Onesimus, the slave. Paul is exhorting Philemon to do something with that slave. Anyone get the first one? Acts 1826. You got it, uh, Bill? Want to read it loud?
2: He
1: began to speak
2: out. They took him
0: aside. Okay, that's Apollos. And he's speaking out boldly. And Priscilla and Aquila, well, he maybe needs a little bit more refining here. So they grab him, take him to one side, take him, might even say hug him to one side. And now they're going to give him some instructions. So that's kind of a visual picture of proslambano to take to one side or take to oneself, that whole idea. Philemon, anyone get that one? 17, you got it, Barb?
1: Uh, So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would
0: welcome Okay, that's praslambano, welcome, or take him in, take him to yourself. In that context, your version translates it welcome. That's probably a good translation. So that's the idea that we have in the passage before us of accepting one another, not tolerating, but going beyond that. Hugging them, you might even visualize it. Taking them in, bringing them close, having fellowship. In other words, breaking down these barriers that divide and bringing them close in fellowship. And again, he reminds us, he's already done this in the first six verses, just as Christ also, same word, proslambano. Christ has accepted us. And by the way, the one another's here, there's a whole string of one another's in the immediate context. And if you backtrack, somebody look at chapter 12. Notice verse 5. This kind of gives us the the basis. 12.5 gives us the basis for the unity that Paul is striving for throughout. Somebody want to read 12.5? Go ahead, Denise.
1: So we, being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Of
0: one another. Members of one another. We are diverse. We are very different. Some of us more different than others. Connie's looking at me. (laughs) Yes. And sometimes those differences have sharp edges. Sometimes those differences uh, get on people's nerves, right? But we are there's a unity and there's a oneness there. Now read verse 10. We are members of one another. That's the basis. There is a unity, one body. We're all individual members of it. And then verse 10, somebody's got that one.
1: Be kindly affectionate to one another, with brotherly love, to honor and preference,
0: in honor. Okay, one another. This is... That unity is expressed in love, and it's a devoted love here. And verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another, this unified, not that we all think the same thing, not that we all believe identically, not that we all agree on every little jot and tittle, but there should be a unity of spirit, a unity in terms of taking people in and accepting them for for who they are. So lots of one another, uh, verse 8. Somebody want to 13, 8? Want to read that one? I have. Go ahead. Oh,
1: a love, does, love.
0: And that kind of summarizes it. In other words, the whole concept of love. And this is agape, unconditional, not based on whether I like that person or, or whether they think the same way I do, but I love them because I'm part of this unity, this part of this body. Denise,
1: going back to First Corinthians 13, where it says, a, "A glass dark and each one of us has a vision of what God is. And it's going to be to God, He's going to allow it. Right. <laughs> it's going to be a great day.
0: Exactly. And then we have a couple of other one another's that we already looked at in 15, five, <coughs> and six. you have the same mind, almost repeating what we just read. Same mind with one another, and this is according to Christ Jesus as well, in other words, in fellowship with him, according to what he has taught, and he is the pattern here in fifteen seven. And with one accord, verse 6, with one accord you may with one voice glorify God the Father our Lord. So back to the glory, and all of this is to the glory of God, in other words... When this is going on, when we are accepting one another as Christ has accepted us, that in fact reflects to everyone around the unbelieving world, if they're watching, the unbelieving world can see something, get a glimpse of the glory of God. So what is this glory? Let's talk a little bit about it, the glory of God, as an appropriate uh, conclusion to the main portion of the book of Romans. There are different aspects that we can discuss concerning the glory of God. You always start with what we might describe as the inherent glory of God. In other words, it is God and God alone that has glory, and glory is the essence of who God is. In fact, uh, Denise came real close to defining it for us in that the glory of God is something of the composite of the perfections of God. In other words, the totality of God, you can think of it as the glory of God. And sometimes God displays that glory and makes it evident so that we can even experience it, even visualize it. I think on occasion, people have even seen the glory of God. And we can see it with our mind's eye as we read these passages and the experiences that people have had that came into contact with the glory of God. A passage to remember is Moses, remember in, uh, what is it, Exodus 33, 33 and 34. In fact, even Moses asks, he prays, he asks God, show me thy glory. And God says, well, get You know, you won't be able to see my full glory. It'll uh, dissolve all the elements in your body. Well, not in those terms, but basically he says you cannot see the full glory of God. So he just saw a part. And what does God do? God passes his glory before Moses. And what does the text tell us? Anyone remember the passage? His mercy, his compassion, his goodness I don't think it mentions sovereignty, but all of the perfections of God are the glory of make up the glory of God. So that's inherent glory, Maddie. Yeah, read it. First read it.
1: The Lord descended. <laughs> it's Exodus thirty-four, starting at five. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of. The Lord the Lord,
0: God, compassionate and gracious.
1: Compassionate and gracious.
0: Slow to anger.
1: Slow to anger. Yep. And abounding
0: Loving kindness.
1: That said, right?
0: Yes. That's and, it. and
1: truth. truth. Yep. Who keeps loving kindness for a thousand? Who forgives transgression and sin. Yet
0: he forgiving. It, right? Forgiveness. He mm-hmm.
1: That he will by no means leave the guilty unfit. He's a
0: just God. God. Yes, just
1: visiting the fathers on the children. the grandchildren,
0: the thirty. And you could add more. These are all that are recorded in that contest to give us a feel for the glory of God. That's the inherent glory. Man has no could glory. You Ray, could you give us that? Right, could you give us that right now? Exodus thirty-four. Starting in verse 5, on for a few verses.
1: Seven. Thank you.
0: At least verse 7. Yep. So that's inherent glory that only God possesses. God is glorious. Now, he's created us in his image and has been pleased to give us a little smattering of that glory. But even that, because of sin is distorted and marred and in some ways diminished. But that's inherent glory. So when you think of glory and the glory of God, think of something of the composite of who he is in terms of his perfections. Now there's also what we might describe as revealed glory. God has been pleased to reveal himself and to make that glory known. In fact, that's the purpose of the creation, that's the purpose of the whole universe, is to display the glory of God. And his creation by itself displays. He is built into the creation, things within it that you can detect to be able to see the glory of God. A key verse in the Old Testament. You all know it. What? Old Testament.
1: Old Testament, sorry.
0: That's the good New Testament one, Romans 1. But uh, pardon me? That might be one. No, I'm thinking of Psalm 19. Psalm nineteen oh, one.
1: God.
0: Astrophysics declares the glory of God. All right. The general, heavens General, go, revelation, general right. revelation. So God has built within the creation bits of data that tell us something about who he is. And everyone is exposed to that. So everyone is exposed to some aspects of the glory of God. That's revealed glory. And uh, obviously he has revealed his glory primarily in his word by verbally revealing himself. Deuteronomy 5.24. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst. What's the context here? Mount Mount Sinai, where it was visible. The glory of God was visible, was audible, was, what's the word, feelable? Is that a word? Tangible. (laughs) Oh, tangible, okay.
1: Uh, Scary. It was
0: was very scary. The the whole mountain rocked. Everybody sensed it and felt the glory of God, his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with men, and yet he lives. So the glory of God is so magnificent, that it could dissolve you into less than atoms.
1: Okay, so I just have an observation, right? hmm where the vinyls be open, uh-huh. right, and it just melt everybody, the guy who's inside the casket, just to react. It. Oh, there you like, go. I'm like, yeah, that is good, you. but <laughs> your <hurt, though>, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Might give you a, a visual picture of what would, might happen if you saw too much of the glory of God, right?
2: After this, hey, Moses, what are you talking about? Yeah. That's back in Exodus 19. As well.
1: Yeah. in 24,
2: Moses and the elders won't meet God, and they
0: don't die. Yeah, Moses is recounting that experience in Deuteronomy 40 years later. Yep. Good point. So that's the revealed glory, and there's lots of other verses that we could look at. So when you think of the glory of God, we can see bits and pieces of it in his revelation, both general revelation and special revelation, and the Bible encourages us to ascribe glory to him. We can't add to his glory. We can't, in a real way, give him glory When we say we want to give God glory, what we're saying is we want to ascribe glory to God. Either by the way that we live, we can ascribe glory. People can see the glory of God if they see Christ living himself out through us. Or when we praise him and adore him, we are ascribing glory to him. And we're going to see some of that in the passage verses 10 through 12 there. So that's the ascribed glory of God that we are in fact, even responsible to ascribe glory to him, to give glory. And Paul even condemns the lost world for not giving glory. Remember all the way in back in in uh, chapter one of the book of Romans. You might turn there. Have somebody read, I don't remember.
1: So in ascribing your ashes God, the honored place
0: that is due him. Well, Very good. Well, we're acknowledging who he is, yes. Very good.
2: That's uh, also
0: Romans 15.6. Yes. Uh, yeah. And with one, one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father. Ascribe right. to him and give him his due, as Maddie says. Very what good. Kind
2: of implied plurality there, unity, the importance of unity in the church. Mm-hmm. Yep. Implied unity, yeah.
0: Definitely. Uh, Romans 1, when Paul is describing the unbeliever, for even though they knew God, and he's looking at humanity in general, verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not, and the word there is glory, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And that's what the unbeliever does. He does not give what is due to God the respect, the glory, the honor that belongs to him and that is due him from his creatures. So we can ascribe, and in fact, our lives should reflect Christ-likeness. That's what Christ's likeness is. Christ's likeness is essentially reflecting and in a visible way uh, ascribing glory to God so that uh, a lost world can actually get a glimpse. And as part of what God will use in the judgment if they never come into a saving relationship with him. The Lord can say, well, you, you rejected the verbal testimony of Connie, and you rejected the lifestyle of Denise, and you saw something of who I am in both those people and uh, you are condemned to an eternal separation. So that's ascribed glory. Does that kind of give you a better handle on, on glory? And the rest of the passage is going to give us a little bit more of how God has revealed. In fact, his plan reveals his glory. His plan is a glorious plan, and he's going to lay out some of that in the following passage here. So the sustaining of brothers or the accepting of brothers, or kind of summarizing everything that we've had in chapters 14 and the beginning of 15, restraining our liberty for the benefit of others, building others up, loving one another, etc. The sustaining of brothers, verse 7, kind of capturing all that, therefore. And now he's going to talk about this plan, or the service of Christ, and what Christ came to do. Let's look at that passage in uh, verse 8. And the sentence runs all the way to the end of verse 9. And usually I like to put a complete sentence on a slide so that we don't get part of it. And sometimes it's good to break down the sentence so that we can break down what is the main parts of it and understand the essence of what is being communicated. For I say that Christ has become a servant. I think I'll read the whole thing. A servant to the circumcision We'll have to break that down a little bit and talk a little bit about it. On behalf of the truth of God, this is the revelation of glory, the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the father. So he's going back to the fathers of the, in this case, circumcision, the fathers of Jewish people. And there's two overall purposes In this broad plan of God that goes all the way back, and we're going to see, to Abraham. In fact, you might even put your marker in uh, Genesis chapter 12. We'll go back and look at it real quickly. So he's going to confirm, or this confirms these promises given to the fathers. And notice Christ is a servant to a particular group. He describes them as the circumcision, which goes back, by the way, to Genesis 17, which is the covenant. And in verse 9, for the Gentiles to glorify, and there you go. In other words, this plan ultimately is to glorify God, to glorify God for his mercy.
2: Yay.
0: <laughs> Indicating that Jew, Gentile, Gentile, are not deserving. It's on the basis of mercy. And now he's going to support it from Scripture as it is written, and then he's going to give us four Scriptures, and we'll probably only have time to look at the beginning of them, if that far. And by the way, if you want to study these Scriptures on your own, notice that they come. He's almost summarizing the whole Bible. He's saying this plan of God is from beginning to end. It's in the law, it's in the prophets, and it's in the writings. So he's going to quote from the law. He's going to quote from the Psalms, that's writings. And he's going to quote the last one that he quotes from is from Isaiah, from the prophets. So almost indirectly, Paul is saying this plan that God has effected, that includes Jew and Gentile to bring them together, to ultimately glorify God is a theme of all of the Bible. In other words, this is the big plan of God. So in a few verses here, Paul lays out this grand plan, and we'll just get the beginning of that. So let's look at the first part of this.
1: Yes, always. So is that where confession is that the state that we exist for God's glory, so to make God's and so we got to is mm-hmm. that-
0: uh, this might be one of the passages that would support that whole idea. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is directly. I don't, you know, you know, I don't know anything about history. You know that.
1: What idea, Ray?
0: <clears throat> Pardon me?
1: What did she say?
0: She was saying... She was asking if this is where the Westminster Confession gets their idea of the main purpose of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you heard my answer. It may, uh, it could come from this passage, but it may come from other passages as well, okay? Okay, for I say that Christ, now he's already talked about Christ as the example. Christ has become, which is interesting, it's in the perfect tense, what means something taking place in the past with ongoing effects, ongoing results. Christ has become a servant and continues to be a servant almost on an ongoing basis. And you might even say it's implying something in terms of the incarnation here because we know in the deity of Christ Christ, Christ always is eternal, always has has been. But in the incarnation, and this even may go back to Philippians 2, that speaks of God's humility and God uh, setting aside access to his attributes, emptying himself, that's the meaning of the word there. In fact, we might even look that up. Someone might look that one up. So Christ has become... With ongoing and we would even say eternal effects, has become a servant. And anyone want to guess the word for servant here? No, not doulos. Deaconia, the word that we get deacon from, servant.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: Jim's right. Hmm?
2: Yeah.
0: That's it. Yeah, servant. So. Not deacon, but servant in the sense that he's always giving himself for the benefit of others, whatever the context. And here, very specifically, he has become a servant to the, and it's interesting, I think he chooses the word circumcision here to remind us, This is he's referring to the Jewish people, but I think he's also alluding to Genesis 17, where... The sign of the covenant was circumcision. So he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant, and that con- that's confirmed when he talks about the fathers. All right? So he's a servant to the circumcision, and you have Genesis 12. Let's look at Genesis 12 that becomes a covenant in Genesis 15, And the covenant is re-given in in chapter 17, and the sign of the covenant is given in chapter 17. But in chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, now keep in mind, there was no nation Israel. There's no Jew. There are nations that come from Babel. We don't have a lot of history there. And God is bringing one individual out of the nations, calling one man to himself. And from that man, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, specific instructions to Abraham. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. God is going to create his own counterculture his own nation that will be his own possession, separate and distinct from all the other nations. And they're going to come from Abraham, through Abraham. So we have this grand promise, and I will bless you. In other words, God is going to be a blessing and make your name great. We're reading about him in the 21st century. And so you shall be a blessing. In other words, the purpose of Abraham and his descendants through Isaac, we'll find out later, is to be a blessing to the rest of the world, rest of the nations. So even there, you have a hint of the purpose that God has for his people is to other peoples. We call them Gentiles. All right. And I will bless those who bless you. This is a summary of world history here. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And we've seen that work itself out ever since Abraham. We're seeing that worked out in the Middle East today. And we're going to see it worked out even in the future. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not only from Abraham, but Paul takes this little passage and attributes it to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, all of the nations are blessed. The gospel goes out to the nations. Now, already God has revealed his glory in his word through his people. The Bible was written by Jews, written by his His nation, you might say, his people. So he's a servant. So we have this plan. And let's just get started on it. And we'll go into more detail next week. We have the revelation of a plan, and we've already looked a little bit at that revelation. You could include Genesis 12, the one passage we looked at. You could also include passages like Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has shown, saying, surely, just as I have intended, there's the plan, so it has happened. So by the time Isaiah writes, this plan has unfolded in large measure. And just as I have planned, kind of a synonym to intended there, we have synonymous parallelism here, just as I have planned, so it will stand. See, two lines of poetic lines saying essentially the same thing, That's synonymous parallelism. God intends something, God plans something, and he accomplishes it. And by Isaiah's time, a lot of that plan has not only been unfolded, but even fulfilled. Same chapter, 26 and 27. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. There's judgment that's going to be involved. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. There's the nations again. In fact, you're going to see the nations throughout world history. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? In other words, the plan of God is certain. And even the aspects in the future that we have not seen are just as certain as the things that have already taken place, and we can look back and read about. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Again, we have synonymous parallelism. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that assuring? You're part of God's plan, and he's called us to himself, and he's going to finish what he started. He's going to complete for you and I everything that he has planned in that plan. It's his good, in fact, it's his good pleasure. It brings in pleasure. Can you imagine that? So the plan of God is revealed. There's lots of other passages we could look at. This is one of them in Romans that explains that. Christ fulfills in large measure that plan, and that's what we have in this passage. I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. In other words, Revealing this plan, fulfilling this plan, and what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount about the law? I came to uh, not destroy it, but to fulfill it. And in what ways? You've heard me explain how how Christ fulfills the law in at least three senses. He fulfills the law in at least three aspects or senses. You might think of. Okay, there's two at that's very good. Those two there's two of them. And uh, well, I'll I'll combine two of those. Yeah. And there's a there's another one. What Matty's getting at is Christ fulfilled the law in that he fulfills Bible prophecy, we might say. What the law predicted, going all the way back to Genesis, Jesus Christ fulfilled. And many other passages elsewhere all the way in the Malachi Okay, so he fulfilled those passages, literally. Secondly, he fulfilled the law by obeying every aspect of the law. Every aspect, including being the ultimate sacrifice. So he fulfilled all of the sacrificial system. And in fact, if you want to separate those, then there would be four aspects. For Matty's purpose, we'll say that uh, he fulfilled all of the sacrificial system And then, so that would be the third one, and a fourth way that he fulfilled it, and you can see it in the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount, when he fills with meaning the intent of the law, and he takes the traditions of the Jews, the traditions of the Pharisees, and he says, you have said, thou shalt not murder, for example, And then he gives an example, but I say, in other words, I'm fulfilling or filling with meaning the intent of that commandment that prohibits murder. That commandment is not just that outward act where you take somebody's life, but the commandment includes the hatred that comes before that leads ultimately to the final act of murder. Does that make sense? And in that sense, he's filling up the meaning or bringing out the meaning of the law. The four senses in which he came to fulfill it fulfilling all of the Bible prophecy, fulfilling the, uh, uh, by obeying every aspect of the law, and fulfilling the sacrificial system such that he is the final and ultimate sacrifice, and then filling up with meaning the meaning of and intent of God's word. So he comes on behalf of the truth of God. This is on behalf of God himself. In other words, glorifying what God said, the truth of God here, I I think what he's emphasizing here is one aspect of glory of God being the faithfulness of God. God is faithful in his word. Christ is coming and fulfilling it as a servant, and by the way, that's probably an allusion to the servant of the Lord of the Old Testament. The servant of the Lord was a messianic personage, and here is the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, expounded by Paul, and it's on behalf of the truth, and it's to confirm confirm the promises given to the fathers, and we just finished reading the Genesis 12 passage that begins to give us the promises of the fathers and it's plural and if you remember the abrahamic uh, covenant was given to abraham in promise form chapter 12 made into a covenant in chapter 15 reiterated as a covenant in chapter 17 and i think it's given a fourth time to abraham later on and then it's reiterated to isaac and reiterated i think two times to jacob so the father's the Abrahamic covenant, and you've heard me say over and over that the Abrahamic covenant from that time on sets the parameters for the rest of world history. In other words, this is the way that God is going to deal with mankind for the rest of history, and it even includes, Paul tells us, the work of Christ, because he sees Christ as fulfilling some aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. So, confirming the promises given to the fathers, And let's just begin this. The plan is Jewish. You've heard me say world history is what? World history is Jewish. Eschatology is what? Jewish. (laughs) If you've taken the eschatology course, eschatology is Jewish. The plan of God is Jewish. We read the Genesis 12 passage. And let's just touch on this, and then we'll go into a time of prayer, and this is what we'll pick up next week. So this service of Christ goes all the way to verse 12, from 8 to 12 in verse 8. Service to the Jews, and it's through the Jews that the Gentiles have access. That's part of the plan of God. So the Jews have a priority in this plan. But there's also an inclusion, and in the first century, Jewish believers needed to hear this. Because part of their background, part of their upbringing was these Gentiles, they're dogs. They're evil. They're unclean. And what they need to be reminded of their own scriptures, and Paul is going to take four Old Testament passages from the law, prophets, and the writings, totality of scripture, and show that the Gentiles have a place. And they've had a place in the plan of God. And that plan has not been totally realized until Jesus Christ, okay? And it's not completed yet. But this, is also, this was also part of the purpose of God calling Israel to himself was they were to be a light to the nations. They were to be the evangelists of the Old Testament. So a service to the Gentiles and for the Gentiles. So he's a servant to the circumcision But it's supposed to work itself out for the Gentiles, and this is to the glory of God. And it just displays what God has planned and what God wills, and it's a glorious thing. And in this context, he's promoting, therefore, we can accept one another. Therefore, we should be united. Therefore, we should bring one another to ourselves, accepting pros lambano. Therefore, we should love one another. Therefore, there should not be these divisions. Otherwise, that detracts from the glory of God, the bringing together of Jew and Gentile to the glory of God. And Next time, we'll begin with the plan includes Gentiles. Okay. Just
2: a correction. Actually, the fourth time I think is in Genesis 13. but Genesis 18 is uh, in the first place is literally fulfillment of Sun, all okay. When, you come, when
0: I come back next year. Right. Yeah, Jeff's pointing out that the Abrahamic covenant is mentioned, not in detail, in 12, chapter 13. 15, 12, 13, 15, 17. Yeah. Good point. Well, uh, who are we supposed to pray for today? All right, let's do it. Pray for the Americans in Afghanistan. Not, not only Kabul, but they're spread all over. Yeah. And I've been hearing that. There's executions of believers going on, so pray for the believers that they'll...
1: And pray for the unbelievers, that they would come to Christ. Pray for the
0: unbelievers, right. Okay, very definitely. Let's do it. Feel free to pray.
1: Lord, we lift up the people in Afghanistan, and we just pray that you would that you would uh, be with your people, uh, whatever happens to them, that they would have the feeling and the knowledge that you are there with them. And I pray for a mighty work to be going on in the Afghan people that have been around the Christians there. I pray that they will also accept you. I just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.